Okay, James chapter 1. We're going to begin our reading in verse 13. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. When I was in my senior year of high school, I wrestled at 158. At that time, if I happened to stop through a McDonald's, I would eat two Big Macs, large fry, large Coke, and one or two of those apple pies. Now, many years later, I'm doing good if I can eat one Big Mac and a regular fry, still get the large Coke. And now I'm in my 230s. But I've decided that it's God's will for me to be in my 230s. <laughs> because otherwise he wouldn't have invented Doritos to eat while you're watching TV at night. No, I'm just kidding. But I think he'd probably like me a little thinner. At least I would like me a little thinner. The reason I bring up that subject today is because uh, if you look at like dieting and weight loss, there are some definite similarities in facing those kind of things and dealing with any kind of a temptation because temptations deal with our desires. Another word for our desires is appetites. And so uh, those things are very similarly connected. Well, as we look at the passage in James, that's what he's going to start dealing with here in verse 13. He's dealing with those temptations that we all face and those struggles and hardships. And he's saying, whose responsibility is it in dealing with the temptations that we experience in life? Now, if you remember from last week, he, he started off beginning not so much with temptations, although it's the same, same word. Right? There's only a couple different words used in all of chapter 1 dealing with temptations, and they're used kind of interchangeably with trials, testings, temptations. Really, the context itself of the passage kind of gives you insight into which uh, way to take those words, as with most words in the Bible. Context is key to understanding what the message is. As he started out in chapter 1, he started talking about trials, hardships that we face. Talked about how God can use those things for testing and strengthening us in our life. But now when he gets into verse 13, he kind of shifts. And he shifts from trials, which aren't necessarily sinful in and of themselves. They're just a challenge. And now he's going to shift to temptations, which do entice us toward sinful, or as it mentions in this passage, evil outcomes. But the point that he's making is that I was completely wrong when I said, uh, it's God's will for me to be 230 pounds. See, people were doing that. Apparently, because he's addressing the issue, people were taking temptations that they were failing at and coming up to the conclusion that, you know what, it's kind of God's fault in the end, isn't it? Because he allowed me to be in this situation that I couldn't uh, overcome or whatever. And so somehow it was God's fault that they ended up sinning in their life. And so as, as uh, kind of crazy as that seems... I think if we all stop and reflect a little bit and think through some of ours, we might kind of drift towards some of that thinking sometimes. Uh, we're uh, often uh, easily and ready to shift the blame. But the half-brother of Jesus, James, as he writes this letter to these people, he says, look, don't let any of you think like this. You need to take responsibility, is what he's challenging us to do, take responsibility for our temptations in order to be able to overcome those temptations. Well, as we consider that this morning, responsibility and temptations, we're going to point out from this passage five different reasons why we should take responsibility for our temptations. The first reason we need to take responsibility for our temptations is because of the surety of our temptations. Temptation isn't a thing that some people get them and some people don't. 
Just like we saw back in chapter 1, it talked about when they would face trials of various different kinds. He does the same thing here in verse 13. talks about when we are tempted. It's not a if you are tempted. It's a not a, you know what, maybe someday you'll be tempted. This is a when you are tempted. This is a kind of a regular part of the Christian life. Christian life and facing those temptations, overcoming those temptations, bringing honor and glory to God and, and Jesus Christ as we live out our life before Him. He says in, in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted that I'm being tempted by God. I think that you're probably a lot like me and that you don't really have too much trouble uh, recognizing that temptation is a regular experience in your life. There's a lot of things in this world that are pushed your way. The Bible tells us that we're tempted from three different sources, from the world, from the flesh, from the devil himself. And so uh, there's going to be no shortage of things for you to face, hurdles for you to overcome, temptations for you to become victorious in. And you know what? That right there ought to be reason enough. You definitely have things coming just around the corner that you don't even know are there yet that are going to be a struggle. You have others that you do know are coming up right around the corner. You need to be ready for those as well. But that's the first reason he gives. He says, look, when we are tempted, in other words, you are going to be. So you better be ready for it. Well, then secondly, he focuses on this a lot. In fact, I'd say it might be kind of the primary part of the passage is he deals with the source of our temptation. Where does our temptation come from? These people were finding God to be a convenient loophole. Well, uh, the fact of the matter is he points out two things about our temptations here in this passage dealing with the source. And one of them is that it is not God. Verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. That statement there sometimes uh, draws a question for people. They say, wait a minute, doesn't the Bible talk about God tempting Job? Doesn't the devil come and try to tempt Jesus? Doesn't Jesus tell the devil, you shall not tempt the Lord your God? So it seems like there's maybe a possibility of it. So what exactly does this mean? Well, like I told you about that word earlier, the context gives the key for everything. God tested. We should think about it that way. God tested Job. Just like in chapter 1 earlier, used the word to talk about our being tested. He tested Job. What's the difference between a temptation and a test? A test is to strengthen you, to prepare you, to help you to overcome obstacles. A temptation is for your destruction to try to get you to fall. So God may test you in some things for your growth. He will never tempt you for your destruction. And it's the same also when you think about God's character and the fact that He cannot be tempted. Some people think that James came up with his own new word right here. Because you don't find it anywhere else in the New Testament. And it's a part of the word that is translated tempted already three times in chapter 1 of James. But it just adds a little letter A, or if you're in the Greek language as they were, alpha, right in front of it. And so if you think of the word tempted, and then we'll kind of keep it in our language, say uh, he's saying God is A-tempted. When you put an A before something, it means that it... It's not there. It doesn't exist, right? Kind of like uh, in your view of the end times. You know, when Christ returns, is it going to be before the millennium, after the millennium? Some people believe that there is no millennium. So what do they call their view of that? They call it amillennialism. Uh, same kind of thing with what about people that believe in God? People that believe in God are called theists. The word for God in the Greek language is theos. From that we get theists. We're theists. We believe in God. What do people call that don't believe in God? atheists. And put a little A in front of it and now there's no God. Atheist. And so that's what James does with the word tempted. He calls God a-tempted or a-tempted. In other words, He is not temptable. 
Now, how do you reconcile that? If, if you're not supposed to tempt God, how can you tempt God if He's not temptable? It's your understanding of what it means to be tempted. You see, what this is talking about is when you are actually tempted. Can God actually be tempted? No. Can you try to tempt Him? Yes. Getting more confusing? Well, hopefully right around the corner here. A little analogy maybe will clear it up. As we've talked about even recently, I hate eggs. I like them in cake, cookies, things where they're not detectable. I remember one time a babysitter when I was a kid made me French toast. I love French toast, but it had all this egg around the edge. I was like, what is that? I said, that can't be there. And she had to cut it all off. I didn't even do it. She had to do it. She had to cut it all off because she was like, what's the matter with you, kid? But I just, I can't stand eggs. And so the point is now, you can tempt me with eggs all that you want to. And that's a fitting use of that word. You can try to, you know, I don't know what you could do to it, but try something. But you know what the point is? I am never going to be tempted. No matter what you do to an egg, unless you grow it up into a full-size chicken and barbecue it, um, I am just not going to be tempted to eat that egg. I have no appetite for eggs. Zero. If you made me, I would crack it in a glass, stir it up with a fork and drink it, just so it's over with quickly. That's how much I don't like eggs. You see the difference between the word tempted. You could try to tempt me, but I will never be tempted. And so that helps us with our understanding about God. When we look at the context, God says, the Bible says God cannot be tempted. Can you try to tempt God? Sure, go for it, but good luck. He cannot be tempted with evil. Nor does He tempt. Same word used in a test, a trial. Does He allow those to come? Yes, but He never tempts us. When are you actually tempted? It's when your desires kick in and you say, I want to do that which is evil, that which is wrong. That's when you're actually tempted. He's talking about when our desires take root and we want to do something that is wrong, God never puts you in that place. In fact, the word by that shows up twice, once in verse 13 and once in verse 14 here, is actually two different words in the Greek language. Apo and hupo. Apo is a remote source. Hupo is a direct source, a direct agent in the conflict. And so when it says it here, it's saying, look, don't think that you're even remotely tempted by God. He's not doing this. And then a little bit farther, when it gets into verse 14, it says, but each person is tempted when he is being lured and enticed by his own desire. That word by is a direct agent, direct source. And it says you are directly being tempted by the desires that are within you. And notice that even though James obviously, since he mentions Satan later and how to uh, defeat him, um, he obviously believes in the temptations that come from Satan. Notice he doesn't mention the world. He doesn't mention Satan. All he focuses on is us. The, the cause for our temptation lies within ourselves. If that's the case, it means we have a measure of control in this situation. We have a responsibility. We can own up to that responsibility because it puts it in our realm of control. Things that are happening on the inside of us. Well, when I think of God not causing our temptations, in fact, God has even given us a promise. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, many, many other people have gone through exactly the same thing you're going through, which is encouraging because that means there's resources out there to help you. There's other people that you can get help from. How did you overcome this? And then, of course, God is the greatest help. It says He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved... Flee from idolatry. Idolatry was the specific sin he was dealing with them with at the moment. But there's a good uh, indication. God has promised that with every temptation that He's given you, He hasn't given you anything you can't handle. Other people have gone through it too. You can get some help from them even if you need to. 
But here's the deal. He always provides that way of escape. Therefore, what is the common sense thing to do? Flee. Run. Get out of it. Take that escape hatch that God has given you in that situation. Now, not only do we know that it's not from God, but James points out that it is from us. As we mentioned in verse 14, he says, but each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desire. When we fall, when we cave into a sin, whose fault is it? It is our fault. That's why we need to take those things and learn from those things and overcome them in the next round. The victory that Christ has accomplished for us in the cross and through His resurrection from the dead, that power resides inside of us. That same resurrection power. So we have the ability to rise up over those temptations in Christ and through Him. If it was all focusing on the temptations that come from the world, the temptations that come from the devil, then we'd have somebody else to blame. But the fact of the matter is, even if your temptation is coming from the world, it has to take root in your own desires to be effective, and you get some say in that. You can focus on Christ and live in Christ and experience the victory that He accomplished for you over that sin. But we have a tendency to drift the other way sometimes. You know, we see it all the way back from our heritage, back in dealing with Adam and Eve. They were told, don't eat from that tree. You eat it from it, you'll die. Serpent comes along, tempts them, says you're not going to die. That's, that's, that's crazy talk. You're actually going to become like gods. You're going to have a kind of life like you've never dreamed of. And they bought into the lie and listened to the serpent and they ate the fruit. Well, then what did they do? What was their response afterwards? Did they own up to it? No. They didn't. In fact, they kind of did just exactly what James is warning against and warning about. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, when the man was confronted by God and he asked if he ate the fruit that he wasn't supposed to eat, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. So what does he do? He shifts the blame. The chapter before, you're reading, wow, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh and I'm going to call her woman because she's taken out of me and, and uh, she's going to be the mother of all living and, and nothing but praise for Eve. And then they eat this. Great marriage advice, by the way. You choose the wrong path. You fall to temptation. It starts putting up huge roadblocks in your relationship. There's no other way around it. Adam, whose Eve is the delight of his eye. God says, did you eat that fruit? And he's like, that woman, that woman. All of a sudden, what happened to flesh of my flesh? Bone of my bone. Now it's that woman. Then he doesn't stop there. He says, "Whom you, by the way, you gave her to me, I believe. Isn't that how it happened? And so he blames Eve. He blames God Himself. James says, don't let any of you, when you're tempted, think that your temptation's coming from God. Don't blame God. Eve does the same thing. He doesn't point it back at Adam, though. It says, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent. Today, the devil made me do it, right? And, and you know what? Down through the ages, what do we do? Our first indication when we screw something up, when we do something wrong, who can I blame for this? It's got to be a reason it's not my fault. It is your fault. It is my fault. There's actually a freedom in that. Because if it's somebody else's fault, then you're a victim. And you know how do you, how do you overcome victimhood? But if it's your fault, then you can kind of take the reins and you can step up and you can do something with it, which is exactly what James is doing. He's putting the responsibility for the temptation right back on the people. He says, look, this comes from in, in you. This comes from inside you. Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 3 says, When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. How many times have you seen that? People kick God out of their life in just about any way imaginable, and then something goes wrong, and they're like, where's God? Well, you asked him to leave a long time ago. First century Jewish philosopher lived from about 20 B.C. to 50 A.D., and he said this, he says, When the mind has sinned and removed itself far from virtue, it lays the blame on divine causes, attributing to God its own change. 
In other words, just simply, when we mess things up bad enough, we will blame it on God before we'll take the responsibility ourselves. We need to be different that way. We need to own up and take the responsibility for those temptations. And so we see, first of all, surety. You're going to enter into those temptations. That's a good reason to be responsible for them. The source, the source is from me. It's not from God. It's from me. And so that's a good reason to stand up and take responsibility for my own temptations. And then not only that, you better because of the subtlety of the temptation. In James chapter 1, verse 14, it says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The word lured is it's perfect. If you look it up, the word literally means to be drawn out. It's a, a term that not only today, but even back then was used dealing with fishing. And because of fishing, what do you do? You try to lure the fish out toward the bait. I remember when I lived back in Washington, uh, one of my brother-in-laws and I, we went fishing for largemouth bass on this little pond. During the day, we'd go around the lily pads because that's where the bass were hiding out and we'd try to like slip our bait into holes you could see in the lily pads. We had to be careful because there's a lot of coverage in there. And the biggest fish you'd catch would be about a pound. Well, then we went back later at night. It got dark and we fished from about oh, 10 o'clock until 1 in the morning or so. Then we're using like top lures and stuff that splash around and make a bunch of noise. And what we'd do is we'd cast down the front of the lily pads and try to get those big bass that are hiding in the lily pads to come out after them. And then one pound was about the smallest fish you caught. You caught them anywhere from one to five pounds. And it was a blast. We just loved it. But you had to get those fish out from the protection of the lily pads. You had to lure them out. That's exactly the word that's being used here. In fact, these two words that are used here, lure means to draw out, and enticed means to catch with bait. And so what do we do when we go fishing? We take something that look, either is or looks like fit, food for those fish, and we stick a sharp hook in it, and we get it down to where, try to lure those fish out from their protection to the place where they will bite it and we can catch them. Well, James says, you know what? That kind of subtlety is what's happening with you. James says, from right within you is this subtlety that is luring you out, enticing you with bait, trying to get you to sin. And so it's very subtle. You know what? If it's that sneaky, if it's that subtle, then we need to be very responsible. We need to be very aware. And I think we'd recognize the subtlety in our own lives because who among us hasn't fallen to a temptation? Even repeatedly. Lisa and I were talking the other night. We were laying in bed, about to go to sleep, but still a little awake. Turned on a TV show. And then we had a discussion about Doritos. And at first we're like, you know what, we're fine. Should just go to sleep. Should never eat. Probably after six or seven anyway. That's that's bad for the waistline. That kind of thing. All right. Are you going to get them or me? <laughs> so, right? There's just that. Enough said. Next point. Not only is it subtle, it's a system. It's a system because when we when we look at at verse 15, then it gets to it says this is a whole process. This is not just a one-time isolated event. You know, a lot of times I think we think about it that way. Oh, it's just this moment. It's just this one thing, this one time. And it says, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's amazing when you think about it. Those desires within inside of you that get stirred up and, and that are tempted to do the wrong thing, a lot of times we're just looking at it as that one thing at that one moment. That looks exciting. That looks fun. That looks yummy. That looks whatever. 
We're just thinking of that one thing at that one moment. You know what? This this thing that is working inside of you that Satan's trying to manipulate, the world's trying to influence, and those kind of things too, but that uh, that ultimately resides in you. Those desires, it's all part of a system. Go back to the fishing analogy. Why are we luring that fish out? Because we want to catch that fish, and then we want to throw it in the live well, which is going to turn into the death well, which is going to turn into the frying pan. He says, the desire when it has conceived, so it looks like talking about the conception of a child within the womb. When it is conceived, when it has taken root, then that leads to sin. Think back to David and Bathsheba. David should have been off leading his armies into battle, and he wasn't. Stayed home, took it, took it easy. Stayed home at the palace. He gets up on the palace on a hot afternoon and goes walking along the, the palace roof, and he looks down, and there's Bathsheba taking a bath. Now, when he noticed Bathsheba, had he sinned? No. Well, not unless he had an idea that that's what was, he was going to run into up there. But as far as we know, he didn't have any idea of that. But David strolling around on the roof. And remember, this is a man who is man after God's own heart. There's no sin when David looks down and notices Bathsheba. But you know what? There's just a second. There's just a second of what do you do? Now that you saw, what do you do? Do you look? And what's happening in David right there? His desires inside are kicking in. Up to that point, he had seen, but now he looks. And then he sends for her. And then adultery is committed. And then God's judgment comes down on him and results in the end of death. You see, it was a whole system, a whole thing that took place. Now, if David, when he looked down and saw Bathsheba, would have saw the death of his child, if he would have recognized that this is a system that's going to lead to something really bad, would he have still done it? I think not. But you know what? Sin is never just an isolated event. Sin always destroys. It always destroys your character. It will destroy your health. It it will destroy relationships. Sin always destroys. That fun little thing at the moment or that exciting thing at the moment or whatever, whatever it is that that is, that is never all that's there. It has a really long tail that's connected to a lot of other stuff. And it is uh, super destructive. I remember somebody argued one time. They said, well, you can't stop birds from flying over your head. And the person that answered them said, yeah, but you don't have to let them make a nest in your hair. There's going to be things in this world, wicked, evil things that you're going to see that are potential temptations that are there. Whether or not they actually become a temptation to you, you know what, that's really going to be up to you. Nip this system. Stop it back here. David, at the moment that he noticed Bathsheba, could have thought, you know what, I'm invading her privacy. I'm off this roof. Turned away and been gone in a flash. And that's what he should have done. Any temptation that we face can be handled that way. Turn away. Look away. Flee. As he tells us in the Bible in so many different places. Well, it says that the final outcome, the end of this system, no matter what temptation you're looking at, its final goal is death. Now, death in the Bible is looked at three different ways. All of them would be impacted by this. You know, in Genesis chapter 35 and verse 18, it says, And when her soul was departing, uh, for she was dying. Death is always a separation. When we die physically, it's a separation between our soul or our spirit and our body. But then, not only is there physical death, there's also a spiritual death. And Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were alive physically, but dead spiritually. God told Adam, The day you eat of that fruit, you will die. And Adam ate the fruit, and the day that he ate it, did he die? Well, I think there's a few things that need to be recognized in that question. One is that there was a death. 
God killed an animal to take the animal to use the skins to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness because of their guilt. And so an innocent animal died to provide the covering of their guilt. In an act of mercy, he allowed a substitutionary death of the innocent to cover their sin for a time. That points to Jesus Christ as that substitutionary sacrifice for our sins who takes them away. But then not only do we see the substitutionary death that happened that day, we also see that that day they were kicked out of the garden. They were separated from God. And Isaiah says, your sins and iniquities have separated you from me. We're separated from God in our sins. And we've been outside the garden ever since. So in that sense, Adam and Eve both died spiritually that day because they were separated from God. Now there's one more aspect of death that's pointed out as well, and that is an eternal death. And the Bible refers to it uh, sometimes as a second death. Revelation, looking at the end times, it says in verse chapter 21, verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So the point is this. Uh, we're born into this world. We become physically alive, but we're spiritually dead, separated from God. Jesus Christ died on the cross to bring us to God, to get rid of that separation. If we die physically, not having experienced that salvation, then our death becomes eternal. It's that second death. Our temptation leads to death? Yes. And it may deal with one or all of those. Our temptation is always bringing about our harm, which usually involves a physical component. When you think of, think of things that are obvious, think of like drug addictions and things like that, those have definite physical components that bring us to a shortened life. Sexual things do the same thing. Bring about greater risk of disease, greater shortened life. There's a lot of temptations that are directly tied to physical harm. Spiritual, it brings separation between us and God. And if we don't have experienced that salvation, then it ends up eternal. But death is always the goal of that sin. So when you think about that, it kind of brings us to our last point, that this is serious. This is a symptom that is, has serious repercussions in our life. This has to do, do with our physical harm now, our spiritual harm in our relationship before God, and our ultimate harm in ending up in hell forever if we reject the salvation that God has uh, provided for us. And I think that's why he ends the thought with this statement, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be deceived. Don't think you're going to get away with something here. The Apostle Paul used this same phrase in a couple of his epistles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and dealing with uh, sexual morality, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice what he says. He gives his whole list of things. He says, look, if you're participating in these things, you're not part of the kingdom of God. And right in the middle, amidst of that, toward the beginning, he says, do not be deceived. In other words, do not kid yourself. If these things are in your life, you're not, you're not headed the right direction here. You're up for an eternity that you don't want. No matter how much, how religious you are, because people can tend to be very religious and very immoral at the same time, do not be deceived. You're not going to make it if you're not on board here. Also, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. In other words, you're going to run with the wrong crowd, think you're going to get away with it, it's not going to have an impact on you. Do not kid yourself. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. 
Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So you see, in all these cases where this phrase is used, he's saying, look, if you're thinking you're going to live one way and then get away with it in the end, you're completely missing it. If you think you're just going to fall to temptation after temptation after temptation and that that is a sign of your being a child of God, you've got another thing coming. He's saying all these warnings about death, they need to be taken seriously. So as we live out this life before God and His honor, there's going to be temptations. Our temptations are sure. And the source is with inside of us, which gives us a bit of control. But they're subtle. Got to watch for them. There's a subtlety there and a system that has in play your demise. But those are temptations when they rise up from within us, we better take it seriously and overcome them. You can do that through Christ.